building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. And now, here's today's show. So Chris Norton, um, I think we live in a time when people especially in America, think that everything is supposed to be just awesome and wonderful and that uh, we kind of go out of our way to avoid any kind of pain or discomfort, which is sort of natural. And yet Jesus promises us that growth comes from pain, that when we go through stuff, it's when we really are captivated, our character grows and we become closer to him. And um, you have one of those stories that I think it's, it's one of those stories of deep suffering and deep growth and, um, and joy. And so just tell us kind of the story from the beginning so we kind of get this idea of, of where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in small town, Iowa, I played multiple sports, but had the opportunity to play some college football. And I knew for me, I had four years left of football. I wasn't going to go play professionally or anything like that. But uh, I liked to hit people. So I, I came into Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Big plans, be this all-American football player, meet the girl of my dreams, and then hopefully make enough money to own a lake house. Or better yet, the girl of my dreams family already owns a lake house. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was able to you know, work my way up the depth chart. I was um, second team safety, and I was on all the special teams units. It came to be the sixth game of the season. Third quarter, we're mounting this comeback. I ran out to the field for the kickoff. The kicker huddles us up and he calls a play. Mortar kick right, which simply is a short higher chin kick to the right side of the field. And I don't know why we didn't just call it kick right because our kicker was so bad. Every kick was short. <laughs> but, you know, anyway, you know, I'm pumped because I play on the right side of the field. So this is like my opportunity to make an impact. I'm going to be on the action. The ball's kicked. I'm sprinting downfield as hard as I can go. I see an opening forming, and my instincts are telling me that ball carrier is going to try running through that gap. But I'm going to stop him. I'm going to drive my shoulder so hard through his legs, he's going to drop the ball. And I go for it. I hit him with full speed, full force, but I mistime my tackle by a split second. So instead of getting my head in front of the ball carrier, my head collided right with his knees. And in an instant, I lose all feeling of movement from the neck down. I'm listening to the players crash into each other. The whistle blows, the pile clears off, but I can't get up. No matter how hard I try to move my arms and to do anything to get off that ground, nothing was happening. It felt like someone just flipped the power off to my body. I'm completely conscious. I'm aware of everything. I'm not in any pain. I just can't move or feel. So I'm thinking it's a bad stinger. Uh, just like a temporary, like a little pinch, the nerve, my shoulder, and just just give it a couple minutes, and I'll hop off and get to the sideline. And you know, as I'm waiting there, and nothing's happening, I'm starting to feel embarrassed as the athletic trainers are involved, the EMS are all there. They start asking me questions like, "Chris, can you make a fist with your hand?" I'm trying to make a fist, but no matter how hard I try, nothing happens. Chris, can you feel us touching your legs? I don't feel a thing. And this question keeps going on and on. I can just feel the fear slowly rising inside of me. And then the minute I hear them calling for a helicopter, that's when I know this is bad. 
this is this is serious. And at that point, I closed my eyes to try to escape from my reality and just pray to God. Just please, God, just give me the strength to walk off this field. Just please let me be a normal college student. And whatever you do, I beg you, you know, please allow me the ability to walk. Like, I don't need to play sports anymore. I'll give it up. But that was kind of my bargaining chip. Like, I'll give up sports if you can, you know, give me the ability to walk. And I had no idea at the time, though. I suffered a severe spinal cord injury, and my life is about to drastically change. So when you get the helicopter, you get to the hospital, what are they saying to you on the helicopter, and what do they say to you once you get to the hospital? And what was that process like when you're being rolled into the hospital? So I was very quiet the entire time. I did not want to ask a single question because I did not want to be given the wrong answer. Right. I really wanted to make sure that when I asked a question that they could tell me definitively like what's going on because I didn't want to freak myself out any more than what I was already feeling. But when I did speak up though, when I was about to get on the helicopter and I was telling the, the paramedics I was with, you know, I'm really struggling to breathe. Uh, my ability to breathe just kept getting worse and worse. I felt like I was struggling for air, almost like, you know, if you go hiking to the top of a mountain, you could just feel that air get thinner and thinner and harder to get all the oxygen that you really want. And I, I was feeling that way. And so I'm telling them this, and they tell me, well, we could put a breathing tube down your throat, but it could cause more damage to your spine. Well, I don't want any more damage to whatever's going on. I tell them, I'll be fine. They assure me that the flight crew will be right next to me. If I do need that too, to let them know, and I'm like, okay, I, I trust them. And so we get on the helicopter, and the minute that door shuts, things escalate quickly because I can no longer hear myself breathe or feel myself breathe because of the roar of the chopper blades. I start to panic. It feels like I'm drowning. And I open my eyes. I look at the crew, and I'm mouthing to them, well, help me. I need that breathing tube. Help me. I I can't breathe. I'm going to die. Well, they weren't paying attention. I didn't have the, the headphones or anything to communicate over the noise. Not knowing what to do, I'm, I'm panicking. My heart is racing uncontrollably. I'm, I'm convinced I'm going to die right in front of them. And so I close my eyes and I, I do the only thing I can really do at that moment. And that's just to visualize my breathing and just imagine myself breathing. So every single time I imagined like air coming into my lungs, I counted and just kept counting one breath after another, just one, two, three. And I just keep counting and counting and counting. And eventually though, I get you know well over a hundred and that's when it really started to sink in on me. Like, okay, you're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. You're, you're not going to die. You're going to make it to the hospital just fine. And that really was a moment for me to really help center myself and to really make sure I'm focusing on, you know, what I'm getting instead of what I'm losing. And just it was kind of like a little reminder of, you know, always consider, you know, that breath you are getting and the air that you can get um, instead of what's slipping away. And that'd be a, a huge part of my recovery going forward. But I get to the hospital and it's like a scene from what I picture like ER or, like it's Grey's Anatomy is like the new 
show, but um, just rushing me through, getting me all ready for surgery. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, when I get to that operation room, I'll never forget asking that a doctor, the surgeon, will I walk again? And he just looks at me with, you can see defeat in his eyes. And just says, I don't know. That moment, I just started crying. Just, I could not keep it in. I was trying to stay strong as long as I could. But the reality of the situation just really. And uh, I was terrified. Then I'm put to sleep for surgery. So you come out of surgery. And I got to imagine that feeling of um, you're, you're kind of coming to. And you're like, what am I coming to? To? Like what, what's there going to be? Cause you, you're in one of those horrific situations where, um, you know, I saw that when I was a policeman, I would see people in massive trauma and I would see the, the terror in their eyes as we went into the, um, trauma unit and they would be rushed into surgery and they had, it's not like you're going into heart surgery and a doctor said, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And you wake up. Okay. I woke up. I, I now know what, because it was all explained to me you're waking up not any idea what you're waking up to so what do you do like when you wake up is the first thing you do like try to wiggle your toes like do i feel anything like what is that like once i was kind of coming out of the grogginess and uh, i was so out of it uh, it was pretty shortly after i realized i could shrug my shoulder and so i just that that had to be a huge like relief feeling it was for yeah for me and my family like, okay like I'm moving something like it's, it's better than not moving anything below my neck, which would have was um, initially when I was on there. And then, uh, but then it kind of got worse from there as in, you know, as I'm feeling good about the shoulder shrug, you know, the surgeon comes in to kind of give, update the news of what they did and what they see going forward to my family. And, you know, that's when they just straight up said, like, uh, we believe we've got about 3% chance. To ever regain any feeling or movement below your neck. Not a three percent chance to walk, but a three percent chance to move or feel. A three percent chance to scratch an itch on your face, to feed yourself, and you know it was all so surreal because uh, I could hardly process it. Because yesterday at the time, I was walking, I was sitting up for my college football game, and now all of a sudden I'm lying in the hospital, paralyzed from my neck down, with a three percent chance to move or feel again. And in that moment, I, I make a decision that, you know what, I'm not going to be part of that 97%. I will do whatever it takes to be a member of that 3%. I'm going to beat the odds. And I already showed them, too, like, hey, like, I can shrug my shoulder. There's going to be more to come. And so I shrugged that shoulder for hours. I, I started nodding my head yes and no. That was my other movement that I had. And I nodded my head yes and no for hours. I looked like a giant bobblehead just bouncing my head around. But uh, I just have this belief that, you know, I am responsible for my future, right? Like you, you give it to God, but then you got to do your part and put in the work. And I knew that uh, I had to trust God and what was going on and how he can turn this pain into a purpose. And then I got to do my part and get to work and see what can come from it. What was your faith like before all this happened? I mean, were you kind of a typical college-age kid that was kind of lukewarm in your faith, or were you stronger than the normal? Where were you at when this all happened? Yeah, I'd say probably lukewarm. It was uh, I grew up with Christian 
family. We went to church. I went to the, the Sunday school. I did, I did all those things. I checked those boxes off, but I would only pray though when I really needed something. I was in a, like a bind. It wasn't something that I, I, I lived out consistently and it wasn't something that I prayed consistently and really made that part of my everyday life and thoughts. And so it, it was there though. And I, I believed in God. And in that moment, cause I've always tried to depend on myself. Like I, I can take care of this. Like I can do this. Uh, I, I'll figure it out. And this moment really taught me dependence on God and the, the, his power and really, really taught me. Yeah. Just that importance. Uh, to lean on him and to hold on to faith, even when things are out of your control. So and he really gave me a light at the end of the tunnel. That was another big thing too. Like, you know, I, I read about the, in the Bible. I've heard the messages of, you know, he can turn, what is it? The, uh, he has a plan for you, a plan to prosper you, give you hope in a future. And I would question that though. Like, how is this plan to prosper me? How is this, plans to give me hope in the future like this seems like the end of my life this is like i'm ruined i can't do all the things that i love to do as so i would wrestle with that but i made the hard choice to still believe in it to still have that faith that you know what i, I don't i can't see it and i'm just going to believe in it in that faith right you, you might not be able to see it. it might not make sense at first but to trust in him and um, that's what i did to trust that there were still plans to prosper me so, so you're a typical sort of breadbasket of America, good kid. You know, you went to church, but you're not, you're not wondering how you're going to change the world for Christ. You're kind of just going through life and you come up against this moment. One of my, one of my closest friends is named Ross Mason. He was a, um, iron, uh, a world-class Ironman athlete and he got in a bike accident while he was training and, you know, his feet are locked into the pedals. So the bike went off, hit a tree and he was paralyzed from the neck down for, for quite a while and finally he got moving down to his chest and when that happened he could move his arms you know he can't really move his hands much but he could move his arms which massively after like five or six years but massively gave him more freedom because then he could control his wheelchair better and, and things like that and he can actually like hold a drink and get up to his, his lips um ross really did walk with the lord and it was interesting because his reaction was <laughs> He's such an incredible man of God. He's such an incredible man of prayer. Um, he said he was laying in the hospital. They told him he was paralyzed from the neck down and would never move from the neck down. And he said all he could do is sit and praise the Lord and say, thank you for this rest, God. I was just too busy and stressed out. I'm like, okay, that's <laughs> that's a level of uh, maturity that I can't even imagine. And Ross now has been paralyzed for, I think, 13 years and same attitude. Like he just sits all day long and prays for people and still does all his, he was an investment banker. And so I think, you know, his reaction is what happens when you have a mature, credible man of God in prayer. And I think your reaction is probably typical of a guy who's a decent Christian, but not someone who's lit up. You're going, what's going on, Lord? My life is over there. What, what could I possibly do now? What were you like, 19 or 20? Oh, you're, yeah, so you're a freshman. freshman. So you're 18 years old, but your life wasn't over because really the best was to come in a, in a huge way. But before we get to that, um, I learned a lot from Ross about his process and about 
when you go home from the hospital, it's starting to hit you that, okay, I got to have a catheter every time I want to go to the bathroom, right? I, I got to have someone else wipe my rear end. That has to be for a macho football playing 18 year old stud of a guy, uh, a, a moment that beyond everything else, there's all these little things that people don't think about when you're paralyzed that, that are just, they, they, they try your soul because you're now so dependent on other people. Oh, absolutely. It's way beyond just walking. That's like what everyone gets caught up in. It's like, Oh, like they can't walk. Well then being a quadriplegic, like me and your friend is there's so much more that goes into just not walking. Now, you know, paraplegics, you know, there's a lot that they can do independently. Um, but because of my lack of strength in my arms and legs and core and fingers, everything, yeah, that involves so much more dependence on people. And I really did have to learn that too, is to be more vulnerable, to be more dependent and open and willing to receive help because yeah, I want to do things on my own. I don't want to ask for help. I, don't, I feel like I'm burdening people when I have to ask for their help. I want to do things my way and in my time and how I like to do it. And I couldn't do that anymore. And uh, it also taught me a lot about leadership too, of like, how can you guide people? How can you influence people in a positive way where they want to help you? Uh, because there, there were times where I did take some of my help for granted of just, you know, I, I can't do it. And it's just kind of expect it, you know, just you, you do this for me because I need it. I have to, but uh, I really started to change that to making sure I love on every single person, uh, no matter how small of a task they might've done to help me to make sure they, they know that they're appreciated. And I found that, you know, people want to help, help you that much more. And they're, they're willing to, uh, to be there for you when, when you show your love and appreciation for them. Yeah, I mean, it's even the point, and people, again, you, people don't think about it, but someone's got to turn you when you're sleeping. Otherwise, you know, when you think about when the average person's sleeping, you move to your side, your back, and, and if you don't, you get bed sores and things like that. And so, boy, I tell you, when when someone's in your situation, it, it it's so important to have family around and whatnot. I've known other guys that Ross has helped who had no family and nobody to help them, and uh, they're all alone. And the state does not provide what you might think they would provide for people like that who who are in a paralytic accident and they're they're just, if you don't have someone when you're sleeping to turn you, it can be a real problem. Yeah. I'm, I've been thankful. I I didn't do that. The turning everything. And, um, but after, you know, after even months, I was able to realize I I could lay flat on my back without turning. I think it's partly because, um, just the the muscle spasms that I have in my body, I'm, I'm kind of moving around, uh, naturally uh, with these these involuntary movements that my body will have when um, the signals um, from my brain and my body kind of get intercepted from the damage and it just sends these involuntary signals and just start moving but uh, you know I had a bunch of people rise to the occasion and my family really pushed me outside my comfort zone by making me ask friends and other people for help because when you need help, you go to your most trusted, closest people, but then after a while, it's always them. And they really showed me like, Hey, let's ask your friends, like your friends, I promise you, they won't mind helping. And what I found is I, by asking them for help and like giving them those opportunities, it's been a gift for them too. Um, they, they told me that like, that 
them taking care of me. So they took care of me um, through the four years while I was in college. After my injury, I was able to go back to school and they looked after me. My older sister looked after me and they all said that that was a, a really meaningful time for them to know that they helped my college experience. They helped me to be there and part of it. And that's add purpose in their life. So how long were you in the hospital before you came home? I was uh, in the hospital for about three months. And then I went to outpatient at Mayo Clinic and I stayed at the Ronald McDonald house. So I didn't officially go home to my, my hometown until seven months later. And in that time, you know, I was able to, you know, make some progress where I'm starting to move my arms a little bit. And uh, I started to get some strength in my legs as well, where I was able to stand up with some assistance and then start taking some steps. It was about the fifth week mark um, when I started to feel this new sensation in my left big toe. And at this point, you know, I can move my arms a little bit. I'm regaining sensation, but I still had no movement in my legs. And that's really all I was working for and like dreaming of and praying for was to move something in my legs. I, I want to try and walk And so at this fifth week mark, uh, I wake up to a new sensation in my left big toe. I can feel the air stronger on my left big toe better than any other part of my body. It felt like it was like waking up out of this like deep sleep. And so to me, that means progress. I'm I'm excited about it. I'm with my dad. He's also excited about it. At the same time, we're like kind of working against the clock because a lot of the other like quadriplegic, paraplegics that I talked to who have regained some leg function back, they all said like the latest they got their their movement back was around the six-week mark. And so I'm kind of eyeing the six-week mark of if I don't get it by then, then maybe it'll never happen. And so this is a huge moment for me. I can't wait for the doctor to come in for our examination. The doctor comes in. He's I start telling him the great news about this big toe. And I could tell right away from his body language he didn't really care. So I asked him, can you take my shoe and sock off and examine this, my foot? He refuses. He says, Chris, you're experiencing a phantom feeling. It's where you want to believe that you can feel something differently in your body so badly that you tricked yourself into thinking it's real and that these phantom feelings are quite common uh, with people who have suffered spinal cord injuries. Well, I knew it was real. I knew it wasn't this phantom feeling that he was describing. Well, then the last thing he tells me is, Chris, you'll never move anything in your legs ever again. Wow. And walks out like it's no big deal. I was devastated. And under two minutes, he just ripped through all everything I've been working day and night to achieve. Uh, and so in that moment, though, my dad, who I consider to be the strongest person I know, I've never seen him cry before until this moment. He turns to me with tears in his eyes. He says, Chris, do not let anyone determine your outcome, but you. Wow. Wow. I look back at him, tears in my eyes, and I say, I never will. I respond with even more hope and determination than ever before. You know what? I'm going to go prove that doctor wrong. And so I reamp my physical and occupational therapy, just continue to work on it. Well, not even a week later, on Thanksgiving morning, of all mornings, with my family by my side, I wiggle that exact left big toe, that buzzkill doctor said I would never move again. And I was pumped. I was so fired up. I was telling every nurse and therapist, you go find that doctor. Who I like to call <laughs> Dr. Phantom, and you bring him in my room and tell him the Phantom 
this as I wiggle my toe in his face. But fortunately for him, he was gone that day. I might have been a little too fired up and said something I regret. So I'm glad uh, he was gone. But that toe wiggle, you know, it became so much more. I started to get strength in my quads, hamstrings, and then eventually is when I was able to um, start to stand with assistance and take some steps with some assistance. And that's when, you know, as I was progressing, I set the goal, you know, well, I want to walk across stage of my college graduation. No idea how I was going to do it. I had such a long ways to go. I had to, for me to walk with assistance. What I mean by that, I had leg braces on. I had like this chest strap thing on. I would be suspended overhead like a harness system. I'd have two or three therapists all supporting me and pulling my legs through. But it didn't stop me from boldly telling people I'm going to make it happen. And uh, thankfully, about three years later and a year and a half away from graduation, I would meet um, my my now wife, Emily, and uh, we quickly started dating. I fell in love. And what was hold, on, hold on, man. Don't just like gloss over that. Where'd you meet her? How'd you meet her? Well, uh, we met online. And so I just took uh, a life of its own from online to texting and then uh, we met up in person at you know, Iowa State University. I was so nervous because... Is that where she went? She did. She went to Iowa State University at the time. Uh, she was moving in. Uh, actually, when we were texting, so I'm trying to figure out a way to meet her. And I was like, okay, what are you doing this weekend? Like, well, I'm moving into uh, school. Well, I live... Where I went to school is three hours away. And so I get on the phone. I start calling my buddies who go to Iowa State University. Like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Can I come into town? And like, yeah, sure. And so then I, of course, respond to her. Oh, no way. I'm going to be. And I, <laughs> I'm meeting my buddies there. We should definitely you know, meet up. Like, what a coincidence, right? And uh, um, so we found like a nice public spot to meet up. And my jaw just kind of dropped when I saw her. I had to pick it back up. But she was way more beautiful than I, even the pictures showed her. And so I just kept trying to psych myself up of like, okay, Chris, act like you've been here before. <laughs> Be confident because she was, she is uh, way out of my league and uh, uh, kept it together and we hit it off. And I guess you could say the rest is history. Um, she looked, uh, you know, past my physical challenges and I didn't mind helping and kind of getting in there and um, being there for me. And uh, I really appreciate that. And then, she also became my toughest trainer. Uh, she took on my goal and dream to walk across this college graduation stage as her own. So she was always pushing me to take one more step, do one more walk. And after a while, I actually walked better with Emily than any of my physical therapists I've ever worked with. Wow. <laughs> and so that's when I said, like, she had to be the one who would walk me across that stage. <laughs> well, then I had the brilliant idea for that graduation weekend to make it even more nerve wracking by deciding to propose to her the day before graduation. And I was way more nervous for the proposal than the walk in front of thousands of people. And, you know, thankfully she said yes. Otherwise that next day, sick, sick of that. Awkward. really awkward, but it worked out. And, uh, you know, after, you know, 4,500 hours of training and four and a half person, four and a half years of perseverance, that graduation day finally arrived we were able to, you know, get across that stage and the, the gym erupted. The video would go viral and 300 million people watched on Facebook. 
We get to go on some of the largest talk shows in the country, kind of really help kick off my motivational speaking business, my books, uh, my foundation, the Chris Norton Foundation. And then we also started to receive thousands of messages from people all over sharing you know, how inspired they were from watching this short four-yard walk. And it's given them the courage to push past their challenges. So it was those messages then that would inspire our next goal and walk, which was to go seven yards down the aisle of our wedding side by side. Yeah, that's kind of the... I'm waiting to ask you about that, but I didn't want to steal your thunder. So you said it, so now I can ask you. So, I mean... It's had to have been one of the biggest moments of your life, walking down the aisle of your wedding with her. It was such a moment of like victory and like triumph. Like it was just such a, a beautiful moment to to reflect on the seven years that got me to, you know, my lowest moment to the my great like one of my happiest moments ever was to be with her and just knowing that no matter what you go in through in life if you keep going if you keep praying and keep believing uh, you know good things can come uh, you don't know when it will come but i do believe that you know god will turn your pain into a purpose and you know i saw that and through those seven years going from laying flat on that football field to then being with her it was just such a wonderful moment to celebrate uh, knowing that no matter what comes our way, that you know, I have my, my best friend, partner in crime, uh, Emily, to do life with. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. So, man, I mean, after you have seen the worst of football, are do you still watch football? Do you cringe when you watch people running down on kickoffs? I still watch football. I love football. I, what happened to me was a freak accident. Um, you're more likely to become paralyzed in a car accident from a fall, uh, There's from swimming, diving. All those things are you're so much more likely than playing football. Now, I do think football could be safer. I think there's some adjustments that could be made and there there have been made too. Um, since my, my playing days, playing college football, immediately after my injury, and I was injured the same day as Eric Legrand, uh, who was a D1 football player. Um, was that Rut- Rutgers, wasn't he? Rutgers. So yeah, he got... Um, and it was on a kickoff. It was on the kickoff. Same day, same play. And uh, the year after, they changed the kickoff to make it a little bit shorter. So it's not as fast, which I think it was a wise move. But uh, what worries me about the game of football is just protecting people's heads, the concussions. I think uh, 
that's probably the most concerning part for me. Like I know with my own kids, you know, would I start them playing tackle football at a kind of a peewee age or an elementary age? No, I'll, they can wait till like junior high, you know, six or, or later, sixth grade or later for them to play tackle football for me. That's just how I feel about it. That's why I love football. Um, I love to watch football. And I remember um, when my son was young, he, he had a real affinity or natural ability to play baseball. And I would say, Hunter, you know, let, let's get you into baseball. No, I don't want to play baseball. You know, why don't you? And he would never, only would he want to play football. And uh, I realized when he got hurt, he broke his collarbone as a freshman in high school. And we were talking about how successful he could be as a wrestler. And I remember him saying, but dad, you love football. And it kind of hit me all of a sudden. Oh, all these years he's seen me watching football the whole time. He didn't see me watching baseball. He didn't see me watching basketball, even though I played small college basketball. I was a, a football fan, and um, I realized, boy, the, the effect you can have on your kids that you don't even realize. The reason my seven or eight-year-old son didn't want to play baseball because he didn't see me playing watching baseball, and I had to give him that freedom of Hunter. I like I like watching other people's sons play football. <laughs> so I, I never was big on my own kids playing it. You think about that moment when you were laying on the football field and then in the helicopter, um, to think you were three and a half years away from the greatest moment of your life, meeting your future wife, you, you know, and, and the difference between there and here was you never quit. You pushed through... And I see that in scripture over and over and over the, to the one who perseveres will get the crown over and over and over. We're told in the Bible, persevere, persevere, persevere. The number one command in scripture is fear, not fear, not I think about your situation laying there and how many people came before you who had the physical ability to heal that you did, who gave up, who are still quadriplegics. Now you, you, you clearly, not everyone can see this. Probably a lot of people are listening to this in their car. You don't, you're not fully back. You're not fully healed, but you're, you're definitely able to walk. How far can you walk now on your own or, or do you walk, do you still try to walk much or how's that all work now? Yeah. So I will walk with somebody that can support like my balance. Like I, I still cannot just balance myself freely now, like with Emily or with a friend, like I could, they could be like in front of me. I could hold their arm. They could hold my arms and I can take the steps, you know, on my own or. And how far can you walk? Can you walk into a restaurant, sit down on your own? I don't because, um, it's, it's short distances. So, I mean, I would say like the, some of my like hundred yards would be the max. And then well, that's a long way. A hundred. I mean, that's, that was though probably my prime, uh, <laughs> the past you know couple of years. You know, I've definitely dialed back my training because what I've found is it, it's not really moving the needle as much for me personally and like my quality of life plus priorities have shifted. So, you know, I have, I have a family now. I, you know, have a business. I have a, a nonprofit. Uh, I have a lot of things kind of going on that are really important to me. And so the hours of training every single day to, you know, maybe walk an extra foot or two just isn't, isn't worth it. Um, so I can't walk that far now, but I, I use a chair full time. Um, I mean, there's obviously moments where it's 
good to have the strength in my legs to transfer into like a vehicle or to get somewhere, but uh, it's not often used. And that's because you don't just have a family. You've got six kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what, what made you guys start adopting so many kids? Well, that's really comes from Emily and her passion and heart for children. Like ever since a young age that she has been in love with kids and especially kids who don't feel loved. Um, and if you read our book, the seven longest yards, uh, it's co-authored by Emily and I, and it really goes into Emily's side and perspective and like how she became who she is. But, um, early on when we were dating, she introduced this whole notion that there's millions of kids, you know, especially thousands of kids in the country who don't have a home. They don't have a family. They don't know what love is. And she mentors a lot of them just out of just her good graces, just because she wants to, she cares. And she told me about, you know, this girl Whitley that she's always mentored and and been close with. She's been in and out of the foster care system. She said that, you know, to be with me, you expect to foster and adopt. So, okay, that's fine. Like happy to do that. Well, I didn't realize it come so soon. So we were, uh, just engaged, uh, probably a year after that graduation walk when uh, she received a phone call from Whitley, uh, 17 years old at the time, uh, in and out of foster care homes. And she's sobbing on the phone saying, no one wants me. They plan on putting me on juvenile detention until I age out. Will you please be my foster parents? Emily and I, we talked about you know, all the challenges that would come with fostering a, a 17-year-old who was only six and seven years younger than us. Um, And then we also talked about though the challenge, we talked about what would happen to Whitley if we did nothing. If we just said no and kind of let, you know, fate take Whitley and because no one else wanted her. And so knowing that and knowing she was counting on us, we said yes. And we took her in. Uh, We were her 18th placement. Our goal for Whitley was to graduate high school in time and proud to say she was able to graduate high school. Um, So we had her for eight months. And then after she moved out after graduation, uh, we opened our home for more kids and it started out with one kid. And I thought, well, that was a sweet spot. Well, Emily had other ideas. She pushed then for two kids and then it was three kids and then four kids. Emily's really persuasive. And (laughs) what we found though, is like when you take on more than what you think you can handle, is when you realize your potential. And so we are always able to figure out and adapt to more children. And then eventually, with four months before our wedding day, we accepted a sibling placement of four girls. And these girls we would, you know, fall in love with as well. And then a year after, uh, about a year after that moment, after our wedding, we adopted the four girls. We adopted Whitley. So that gave us five. Then we continued to foster uh, and we brought in a little boy named KJ. And just this past summer, in June 30th, we adopted him. He's three years old. So we have six kids, three-year-old, five, eight, 10, 12, and 22. Wow. And how many kids have you fostered? 18 kids we have fostered. 18 kids you've fostered and six you've adopted. That's insane. What caused so I mean is if you, that wasn't busy enough, what caused you to to make the Netflix documentary on your on your situation? We were reached out to after the graduation walk went viral. Uh, a 
film company, Photolanthropy out of Dallas, Texas, uh, reached out to us like, hey, like, what an incredible story. We'd love to be there and capture your, your wedding walk for you, give you guys um, great videography and photography um, just out of like uh, respect for everything that you've gone through and what you've overcome. And uh, you guys can have the footage and all that kind of thing. We're like, okay, that sounds good. And then we sort of learn about them a little bit more that they do documentaries as well. And so like, what about doing a documentary? And they thought that'd be a great idea. And so we started filming um, for a documentary, my life story to give people hope and inspiration. We, we saw the power of, of storytelling and especially positive storytelling. If you get on Netflix or any sort of streaming network it a lot of times they're, they're dark shows it's not necessarily like the most positive uplifting things that um really help you grow as a person grow spiritually and so we knew we wanted to kind of disrupt that and, and give something encouraging to people and just kept working on it kept fundraising for it it's not like it's like a huge production company out of hollywood and had all this money and backing like we had to kind of bootstrap it and grassroots fundraise and just over time, just kept getting the funds and then we would film. And then when we didn't have the funds, we had to wait. And then we'd get the funds and go filming again. But uh, it was a little nerve wracking because leading up to the wedding, they had already named the movie Seven Yards. So there's like no wiggle room in that title. I can't walk. (laughs) Like it's got to be seven. (laughs) Uh, But uh, they did an incredible job. It was really well done. And then we were even more pleasantly, you know, surprised and honored that, um, you know, a large streaming service like Netflix um, picked it up. And and now it's streaming on Netflix, among other places like Amazon Prime and Apple TV. But uh, it seems like every other person has a Netflix account and, uh, you know, seeing it could do so well on that channel and reaching people right from their homes uh, and their bedrooms. And the messages that I've received, thousands of messages from people who've watched that film is really encouraging. Yeah, I'll bet. So let me ask you as we start to to wrap up, um, what do you think it was that separated you from so many when you were, you know, first dealing with the reality of this accident to being the guy that is going to tell the doctor, dude, I don't care what you say. I'm going to succeed. I mean, I mean, a lot of these doctors can be so arrogant and so sure of themselves. And, and you're at 18 are going to tell a doctor, no, man, I'm going to make this happen. Then all the way through your life now to where you're like this massive inspirational story, book, documentary, and six kids are going to be blessed through their entire life. And 18 foster kids have been blessed. And you're using this documentary as an evangelical tool. What was the thing do you think that that gave you that kind of spirit? I would say there's, there's a number of factors. Um, I'll give you four quick ones that like I think are so important. Uh, the first one is faith. Just like having this hope and this belief that God's got you. And to have hope, it's such an important thing in anybody's life. I mean, you're not going to have any sort of motivation if you don't have hope that your situation can get better and can be used for good. And so I think that was something that I have is that faith, that hope, that you know, things could get better. I didn't know exactly what that looked like. It wasn't my plan, but it was God's plan. And you know what? God has a better and bigger plan for you than the plan you had for yourself. And I had to really live and let go of what I thought 
how I should live my life and how it should look. So that was big. And then the second was I had this belief of being radically responsible for your life. And that means, you know, all outcomes, the good and the bad, the failures and successes, and just knowing that the more responsibility you accept in your life, the better you'll respond to adversity. And so just understanding that I am in control of what I do today. Like I control my effort, my attitude, just the energy that I give, like there are things that are in my control. I'm going to take responsibility for that. And that's what I did early on was just control what I could control, right? And let go of everything else and understanding that there are things I can't, but what I can control, I'm going to do everything in my power to make it happen. And so I really had that belief that, um, you know, I could create a better future for myself. And then the third was, Having family and friends, like those relationships, just people to speak life into you and having that environment, a positive environment, a hopeful environment, uh, really gave me a lot. And uh, I, I always knew I had people that I could lean on. So that was really important. And then I think the fourth and um, final piece for me was just having a purpose, uh, having something bigger than yourself to live for and strive. So what really gave me purpose, especially early on when I felt like giving up, was I started to receive messages from people of how my example was positively impacting them. They kept saying, Chris, you're an inspiration. And at first I'm like, I'm not an inspiration. Like what? Like I'm no way. Um, I'm just trying to better myself. Like I'm just trying to get back to my old life. I'm, I'm just trying to heal as much. And this is what anybody would do in my situation. But it started to give you know hope to people that, no matter what their challenge was, just seeing, you know, my attitude, my effort, they wanted to be like that. They want to live like that. And they started to imply it into their own lives. And so knowing that what I do and my example is having this influence on family, friends and community and even strangers gave me purpose to always kind of do my best and, and to give it my all because there are people counting on me. And so I always consider well, who is counting on me. Because it's bigger than just you. And so that's what I always try to remember. And then also, you know, you know, God's watching too. But I think those four pieces of just having faith, being radically responsible for what you can do in this moment, uh, having family and friends, relationships that you can lean on, and then having a purpose that's bigger than yourself uh, really has helped, you know, brought me to where I am today. And every one of those things you just mentioned are investments that you make in life that you reap great benefits for when you need them. You know, you had a lot in your bank account when you needed a draw on that bank account of character. And um, so let me ask you, I mean, November was National Adoption Awareness Month. W what would you say to people who are thinking about adopting? I mean, there's a lot of people out there who've talked about it, thought about it, don't really know how to go about it. Um, what would you say as someone who's done that to a pretty high level? I would say you can handle so much more than what you think. Uh, and I've seen that just not only as being a parent and when we kept saying yes, um, I was terrified <laughs> a lot of times, like, you know, bringing in kids, um, you know, am I good enough? Am I equipped? Am I qualified? Um, there's going to be little sacrifices that I'm going to have to give up personally you know, you start worrying about all these different things and you know, what are they going to be like? And, uh, you know, all these things, 
you just don't think you're sometimes you're, you're qualified or good enough. And I would say uh, just push past that fear and just take that leap of faith and, and trust that you're going to figure it out. And that's exactly what we have done. It's just kind of you figure it out uh, because you care about them. And every single kid that's ever come in our house, we have fallen in love with. Like, it, it is hard uh, to let kids go, especially in the foster care system. But uh, it's been the best ride that we've ever done. It's been the greatest thing that we've ever done was to bring in these kids. And uh, I know we're, we're probably not done. Although we have six kids, uh, I know my, knowing my wife, there's going to be room for more. And uh, I'm just going to trust her on it. Um, but, you know, all these kids too, they're in a situation of no choice. of It's not their choice, right? They're born into a situation that with, with poor parenting, poor, poor mentors, poor, you know, influences in their life. And they need somebody to show them the right way and to show them the right direction. And um, it's really amazing to see them thrive and flourish into who God has, you know, really wants them to be. It's called to be um, once you kind of get past the layers of past abuse and, and trauma, it's, it's incredible to see them come into their own. Yeah, I mean that shows your strength of character because get past the the trauma and the past abuse is not an easy thing. A lot of times, uh, it takes it takes strength and it takes great patience. So your book, give us the name again one more time, and then the name of the documentary because I know a lot of people are going to want to watch it after this. Yeah, the Seven Longest Yards is the book uh, that my wife and my and I co-authored together, and then the movie is Seven Yards. Uh, and so the, the seven obviously is representing the seven yards I walked to the wedding and the seven years that I took for that moment. But yeah, the seven yards, it's streaming a lot of different platforms in the book. You can pretty much get it anywhere books are sold. Dude, uh, I know you've heard it a million times, but you are an inspiration to a, a lot of people. You are faith in action, man. You are a, a great representation of Christ's love and Christ's perseverance and strength, man. Thanks. Yeah, no, thank you, Ken. I really appreciate being on here. Thanks for listening to On the Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.